Father in heaven, we are thankful that we can come before you this morning as your children, knowing that we serve a God whose ear is bending low to this earth to hear our petitions. And Father, this morning the prayer is simple. If you take our Bibles in our hands and study it, we pray, Father, that you would take the message and send it home to our hearts, that it would change us, Father, to become more and more like Jesus. We thank you for hearing our prayer, for answering it, because we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. This is where we're going to be spending our time together this morning. Last week, we began an introduction to this study of this chapter, the chapter uh, that has sometimes been referred to as the Psalm of Love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is probably world-renowned in Christian circles. And in this chapter, Paul tells us he defines the very essence of what the Christian character is made up of. But before he gets into that, he actually gives us a little bit of a preamble that we studied in our time together last week in verse 31 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right before he introduces this concept of agape. He says there in verse 31, but you should be eager, this is in the New English translation, for the greater gifts, the gifts of the Spirit that he has just outlined. And then he says, now I will show unto you a way that is beyond comparison, or as the King James puts it, a more excellent way. And so Paul takes this time to to describe to us the, the gifts of the Spirit and how important they are to the longevity and the prosperity of God's people, to the, to, the, to the success of us fulfilling the gospel commission. And he uses that as a contrast that he is making in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that as important as the gifts of the Spirit are to the work that God has given to us as a people, as important as they are to our church, even more important than that, the more excellent way, the way that is beyond comparison is what he is going to outline for us in the very next few words in 1 Corinthians the 13th chapter. Now, the main point that he is making here is that as important as these are, they are worthless. The fruits of the Spirit are worthless unless they are infused with this agape love that he is about to show us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, last week we looked at a quote that I wanted to reiterate again this morning just so we can have this fresh in our minds. Sometimes it's good to have a little repetition. And this comes from the Southern Review, January 1 of 1901. This was such a, 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 a paradigm shift in my mind when I read this quote that I think it's worth repeating this morning. It says this, He only who loves his fellow man to a purpose can know God. Only those who know God can, or rather, only those who love their fellow man can know God. And that's a Bible principle. This is the reason why, or this is the reason that there is so little genuine vitality or life in our churches. And then she says, theology is valueless unless it is what? Saturated 
with the love of Christ. And we talked about saturation and what that means. It is so full that it can't take any more. Theology has to be infused. It has to be saturated with agape love in order for it to have value. This is something we really need to meditate on. We need to think about. We need to ask that the Lord will give us this experience, not only collectively as a group, but individually in our own personal lives, that our theology that we believe in our minds will be saturated, filled to overflowing with agape love. God is supreme, she goes on. His love in the human heart will lead to the doing of works that will bear fruit after the similitude of the character of God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul is outlining for us there the character of God. He is breaking it down into its component parts, what the character of God is made up of. Now, as we're looking at 1 Corinthians 13, we're defining this word agape. And we spent a little bit of time last week looking at the different Greek words on agape, or rather the different Greek words on love. And we looked at the definition for agape, which is a desire to do what is best for another. So agape is a desire to find somebody and do what is good for them, irrespective of how that might make me feel, irrespective of how it, how, what position it puts me in. I simply do it because I want somebody else to benefit in a positive way. Agape is not dependent on another person's response in order for it to exist. It loves not because of what it gets or how the other person responds, but because it cares for and wants the best for others. You know, the more I study agape and the more I've looked at 1 Corinthians 13, the more I realize it is very difficult to actually define what this love is. And it's interesting that even John himself at some point became exasperated in his attempt to describe a love, to describe agape. And so he said, behold, What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us? He he just got to the point, it's almost an exasperating statement. I can't describe it. I I can't define it any longer. So he says, just behold, look at it, and you will understand it in a more intimate way. The more we behold it, the more we look at it, the more we will become like what John is describing there. As you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to begin this, uh, our time together this morning looking at this. But you actually find that the chapter, it's 13 verses, is divided into three sections. So you look at the structure there. It's divided into three sections. And the three sections are this. In verses 1 through 3, John, or Paul there is describing the supremacy of agape, how all-encompassing it is, how great agape is. And he makes five contrasting statements there comparing love to different things, or comparing agape to different things. And that's what we're going to look at in our time together this morning, the supremacy of agape. Verses 4 through 7 is really the heart, it's the soul of 1 Corinthians 13. And there he defines the characteristics of agape. He breaks it down into different points, and he says agape is this, agape is this, agape is this. He defines the characteristics of what agape is made of. It's almost like he, he takes agape, he brings it into a laboratory, and he puts it under a microscope, and he looks through that microscope, and he looks at it in great detail, the fabric of what it is made out of. And we're going to look at that here in a couple of weeks, the characteristics of agape. Verses 8 through 13, he talks about the permanence of agape, how it lasts Though other things may fail, though other things may pass away, though other things, even in translation when we get to the kingdom of heaven, will not be there, agape withstands the test of time, and it is permanent throughout eternity 
and also here on this earth. So this is the division that you find, the three points, rather, the overview of 1 Corinthians 13, the supremacy, the characteristics, and the permanence of agape. Now, today we're going to take a look at the first part of this, and we're going to do our best to march through as much of it as possible. But you already are turned there, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 in our time together this morning. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, Paul says this, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I give my, or though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me, what? Five contrasting statements that Paul makes here. He uses the word though to introduce each one of them. And it's unfortunate, it's not a very good translation in the King James Version, the word though. It simply means even if. Even if I had uh, the tongues of men and of angels, but I did not have charity, I would be nothing. Even if, even if I had faith that could remove mountains and I did not have charity, it would be, that would be a better translation. But be that as it may, this is the way the translators wrote it. And we have these five co- contrasting statements here, and I want you to look at them in an overview. He talks about tongues. He talks about prophecy. He talks about faith, acts of charity. He talks about bestowing his goods upon the f- poor. And then ultimately, the fifth contrasting statement is martyrdom. And he says, all of these things without love are what? They are what? Now, I want you to look at that list there. Tongues, prophecy, faith, acts of charity, martyrdom. Let me ask you something. If you saw somebody or if you met somebody that had these five characteristics, would you think that they were a good Christian, yes or no? You probably would. If you met them, you would think, hey, this person's got it together. They seem to really have a good relationship with the Lord. They seem to be good, solid Christians. But Paul here this morning is telling us that even if you had all five of these things, or even if you had just one of them, but you did it devoid of agape love in your life, it has little to no value. In fact, he says it has no value. He says it is nothing in the eyes of God. So this is why that statement in the Southern Review is so important that everything that we are, the very fabric of what we are made up out of is out of this thing that Paul is defining here, agape. Everything has to be infused. It has to be saturated, filled to overflowing. That's what brings life. That's what brings vitality to your spiritual life, to your community, to your church life, to your family life, when we are filled to overflowing with the character of God that is described here in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. Now, I want to go through each one of these very quickly here in our time together this morning and take a look at them. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 first starts off with tongues. There we go. It's lit up there now. 1 Corinthians 13 first starts off with the gift of tongues. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Doubtless, Paul mentions this gift of tongues 
Because as you continue reading in 1 Corinthians, you'll find in the 14th chapter that it appears like the Corinthian church had some level of interest above others with the gift of tongues. If you read the whole chapter there, Paul is actually defining the gift of tongues and what it should look like and and how it should take place among God's people. He really spends a lot of time belaboring this point of tongues. The Corinthians, for whatever reason, put a high value on the gift of tongues. And Paul himself probably uh, possessed the gift himself. He was a very intelligent man. He spoke in several different languages, uh, and he probably possessed this gift himself. But it's interesting that out of the list of the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 12, rather, verse, verse uh, what is it, uh, 28, out of that list, list of, the, uh, of the gifts of the Spirit, the last one that is mentioned there is the gift of tongues. And Paul here is telling us that the gift of tongues, as great as it may be to the, to, to the moving forward, the advancement of the gospel commission, because it's important, we need that gift. He says, listen, if it, doesn't, if it doesn't come from a passionate love for God and a love to see other people one into the kingdom of heaven, he says it has no value in the eyes of God. But not only does he talk about tongues, and it's interesting, there are about 6,500 different languages in the world. Did you know that? 6,500 different languages in the world, and about 2,000 of those languages are spoken by people groups of a hundred or less. Some rather obscure languages that are out there. Now, can you imagine if you met somebody who had the ability to speak all 6,500 different languages? Would they be an important person to the proclamation of the gospel? Sure they would. I mean, (laughs) I know this is like uh, beyond even realistic. But just take for an example somebody who could speak five languages. Is that person important? Is their their gift important to the church? Of course it is. You know, some of these missionaries, man, they go overseas, they go to various places, and they're, they're, they're there to teach the gospel, and it takes them months after months, some of them years, to be able to get that language under their belt so that they can communicate to people in their native language. This is an important gift. But Paul puts it at the bottom of the list of the gifts of the Spirit. But he says, even if you did have it, it is nothing. But then Paul kicks it up a notch. You know, it's one thing to have the gift of languages here on this earth. But he kicks it up a notch and he says, even if I had the tongues of men and of... I don't know what the language of Gabriel is. I've never heard it. Maybe one day, if we're faithful to God, we'll be privileged enough to hear what that language is. But Paul says, even if I had the tongues of men and the language of the angels, if it was devoid of love, he says, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And as I mentioned last week, nobody comes to hear a symphony of cymbals. Nobody goes to hear an orchestra of gongs. And Paul is saying that when the church does not have that gift, that characteristic of God's love, that's how the world views them. It's like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I don't want to be like that. I want to be a melodious Christian. I want to be one that people enjoy being around. I want to be one that that people say, hey, I want what they have. I want that in my own life. I want that peace. I want that joy. In the midst of trial, in the midst of tribulation, I want that experience Myself. Have you ever met somebody who's going through a trying circumstance and yet they still have a smile on their face? They still have peace in their heart. 
They still think about other people rather than thinking about themselves. That's the experience, I believe, that speaks volumes to people around us when God's people possess that characteristic. So what does this mean to me? Verse 1, most of us here this morning speak English. Some of us might have a couple of other languages under our belt, but I think it's safe to say that most of us here this morning really don't have the gift, what Paul defines here as the gift of tongues. So how does this apply to me? Jason Sly, I mean, I took Spanish when I was in high school, and I I, I dropped it two days after I started it, because it just was not my talent. Languages were not my talent. Maybe one day the Lord will give me the gift of tongues. I don't know. But be that as it may, most of us here don't possess this gift. So how is this applicable to me in my own personal life? I believe what Paul, the general concept here that Paul is getting at is that every one of us have been entrusted with talents. Yes or no? To one man, it may be the talent of tongues. To another man, it may be something else. But all of us have been given talents to use to advance the cause of God. And the question is, do I allow that talent to get in the way of God expressing his love in and through me to other people? Uh, What is the talent that God has given to you? Do you think of yourself as a better person than somebody else because you have that talent? Do you think that maybe you have a better relationship with God because you possess this talent and somebody else doesn't? Now, I know the automatic reaction and answer to these questions is no. But I think you'd be better off to ask that question to God. Because if you ask that question to God, he'll give you the honest answer. He'll give you the honest answer. Does your talent stand between you and God, God's ability to express his love to a dying world? I think that's the point that Paul is getting at here, that... Our talents may be the very means of chasing people out of the church when it's not expressed in love. Are you all with me here this morning? We need the talents. We need the gifts of the Spirit. But they need to come from the right source, not from a source of pride, but a source of humbleness of God using us. So Paul begins here by referring to the least of the gifts of the Spirit. And then he continues in verse 2 by going to one of the greatest of the gifts of the Spirit. This is the second example that he uses, the second contrasting statement. He says, and though I have the gift of what? Prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. This is a very all-encompassing statement that Paul is saying here that even if I had the gift of prophecy and understood all mysteries and all knowledge. The ability uh, to interpret prophecy, I think, is the general understanding of what Paul is talking about. He's specifically referring to the gift of a prophet, but the general application is to those that also are able to interpret the writings of Bible prophecy, such as the books of Daniel and Revelation. Uh, it is though the gift of pro- or through the gift of prophecy that we get an understanding of future events and what's going to take place, right? And for all we know, if we didn't have the books of prophecy, we might be around here for another 6,000 years. But the good news is that as we read the gift of prophecy, if we, as we read the writings of God's prophets, we know that the end is coming soon, Amen. So Paul is telling us here about this gift of prophecy. He goes from the least to one of the greatest of the gifts, and he says that this gift 
if it is devoid of the character of Jesus, he says it's valueless. As important as it is, he says it's valueless if it's devoid of the character of Christ. Now, I want you to read this statement here from the Bible. This is from, if I can get my slide to work. Here we go. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. The Bible says this. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the what? Day star arise in your hearts. Now, I want you to notice the direct connection here between the gift of prophecy leading us to the day star. Revelation chapter 22, the Bible tells us who the day star is. That's Jesus Christ. The writings of prophecy lead us to Jesus Christ. But I'm gonna tell you something this morning. Paul is telling us that even if it was possible to have the gift of prophecy without the character of Jesus, the gift would be of no value. It would be of no benefit to the church to have this gift without the character of Jesus. Of Jesus. Paul kind of kicks it up a notch here as well, because he's not just talking about the gift of prophecy, right? He says, understanding what? All mysteries and all what? You know, Solomon tells us in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 13, or Proverbs chapter 3, rather, verse 13, he says, Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. You know, one of the supreme goals of man is the acquisition of knowledge, is it not? Many of you came to this church through the means of Bible prophecy. You saw advertised the Bible prophecy seminar, and you said, I want to go there. Why? Because you wanted to gain what? You wanted to gain knowledge. You wanted to gain understanding. Maybe some of you received an invitation to do a Bible study correspondence course in the mail. You sent it in. Why? Because you want it. Knowledge, or you wanted understanding, you wanted to grow and expand your mind to get a better understanding of God and His Word. One of the greatest quests of men is to understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And in fact, if, if, if there was somebody on this earth who possessed an understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge, you can guarantee that there would be a path that would beat down to that man's front door. People all over the world would be coming to this man. Religious people, uh, secular people, scientists, all kinds of people would be beating a path to this man's front door because there they would find knowledge and understanding. In fact, it wasn't too far off from the truth when it came to Solomon. He was a very wise man, and people came from all over the world to find wisdom at the feet of Solomon. So Paul here is not just talking about the gift of prophecy, but he's also talking about knowledge. However... A knowledge that is only in the head and has not uh, affected the heart in any way fails to do the work that God wants it to do. Have you ever met somebody who had the right answers but you couldn't stand to be around them? Have you ever met somebody like that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, you know, you ask a Bible question, bam, they got the right answer, but you don't want to be around that person. You know you'll get the right answer, but you don't want to be around them. This is not, Paul is not, listen, there will be people who have the right answers, but do not have the character of Christ in their heart. And because of that, they will miss out on the kingdom of heaven. We're going to look at that here in just a minute. Knowledge is important. I can't overemphasize this. We, we need to have a knowledge and an understanding of God's word. But unfortunately for some of us, we feel like that's where it ends. 
We got to take it to the next step and say, okay, now I need to take that knowledge and saturate it with the character of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Then it becomes attractive. Then it's like honey to a bear. Then it is something that is very attractive that people want to experience for themselves as I illustrate it to you in our time together last week. And this is where I believe we are in danger as Seventh-day Adventists. God has entrusted us with a wealth of understanding of his word, amen? He's given us great understanding of the Bible. And I used to think, I used to think that if I simply told somebody what the truth was of the Bible, they would accept it and that would be the end of it. I used to believe that. That was in my spiritually naive days, but I used to believe that. And then I became very discouraged when I would do Bible prophecy seminars and I would present the message in a very compelling way. I'd give all the proof texts, all of the evidence. I'd lay it right out. People would walk out the door as if it was something that, you know, was unimportant to them. And for years, I wrestled with this in my mind, and I wondered to myself, what is it? What's the component that we are missing? We've got the truth. We've got the connections. We've got the Bible. We've got the history. We've got all of this stuff. It's clear. It's systematic. It's logical. But people aren't accepting it. Why is it that people are not accepting it? Because it's not only knowledge that people are looking for, but it's an experience that people are looking for as well. They're looking for a group of people who believe something so much that it has changed the way they live their lives. They're looking for people who are not just religious for a certain period of time during the week, but their experience extends throughout the week every day. They are looking for a group of people who have the self-sacrificing characteristics of Jesus, and when they see that, the truth will be accepted, and they will flood into God's remnant church. You know, I think as Seventh-day Adventists, we get a little uneasy when it comes to 1 Corinthians 13. And I think the reason for that is because it's, it's not as tangible as the Sabbath, right? You present the Sabbath, I can do that. I can go to church on Saturday, not a problem. I can do that. You present the health message from the Bible. You see it? Uh, sure, I can do that. If I want to, I can do that. I can take certain things out of my diet and replace it with other things. I can do that. Uh, You present the second coming. I can believe that. I can stop believing the rapture, and I can start believing that. I can do these things. You go through the doctrines, and they're very easy for us to, in a sense, do. But when it comes to agape, you can't do it. God has to do it for you. And that's where we get a little nervous. Get a little nervous because it's out of our hands. It's out of our control. It's not something I can do. It's not something I can say, okay, I'm going to do agape this morning. I'm going to do agape today. I'm going to do agape uh, to this particular person. No, 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 no. It's something that God has to create inside of you so that it becomes who you are. There's a, a very compelling statement that I read in my preparation for this when I, when I studied this out a while ago, and it's from the book, Manuscript Release, Volume 9, page 128. It's just a short little statement, but it's just stuck with me all this time. And it says this, a loving, lovable Christian is the most powerful argument in favor of the, 
Did you catch that? What's the most powerful argument in favor of the truth? A Bible prophecy seminar, right? Now, this is interesting because this statement, listen to me carefully, this statement takes it out of the hand of the minister. It takes it out of the hand of the trained elder. It takes it out of the hand of the trained lay person, and it puts it in the hand of the, lay, of the other lay people. It says the most powerful argument in favor of the truth is not an eloquent discourse on the Bible's evidence for that truth, but the most powerful, convincing argument in favor of the truth is a what? Loving, lovable Christian. Now listen to me carefully this morning. It's one thing to be loving. It's another thing to be lovable. Come on now, amen? It's one thing to be loving. It's something quite different to be lovable. And I believe that when we experience that, it will be a powerful argument in favor of the truth. When a church has that in them, when it is who they are made up of, and then they proclaim the truths of God's word, it is irresistible because that's what the world is looking for. That's what they're looking for. Now, I'm not preaching just love this morning, but I'm teaching love with the truth of God's word. And when the two of them come together, it is explosive, as you see in many cases in the word of God. But we must hasten on. There's other things we need to look at here this morning. The third thing that we find in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the third contrasting statement is the last part of verse 2. Paul says, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, What does he say? Now, I find it interesting because Paul says, though I have how much faith? How much faith? Jesus said, if I had faith as a grain of mustard seed, what would happen? Say to this mountain, remove, and it will go. Not just, Paul's kicking, he's just, he's pulling out all the stops here. He says, forget the grain of mustard seed. If I had all faith, all that there was that could be possessed, and it was without love, it's nothing. Now, again, Paul is not saying that it is possible to have all faith without love. I don't think that is possible. But again, Paul is saying even if it were possible to have all faith, if it did not have love, it would be of no value. Now, I find this interesting because when you look at the concept of faith in the Bible, it's a rather important thing. You know, here's a couple of statements from the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, the Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to what? Please him. First John chapter 5 and verse 4. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Faith is an important thing. It's important to our spiritual growth. But Paul says, listen, more important than that, we need faith, but we need faith that is saturated with agape. That's what Paul is saying here. And he, he really uh, does a good job throughout his writings talking about the concept of righteousness by faith and how it affects us. The greatest wonder-working faith, mountain-moving faith, faith which views nothing as being impossible is nothing unless it is saturated with the love of God. We'll talk more about faith later on. Paul brings it back into the chapter. Uh, In a couple of studies, we'll get back into that. Number four, he goes on in verse three, and he says this. Verse three, he says, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the who? Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. This is what we would call acts of charity. The word charity is used here in the Bible. It's the 
Greek word agape, but this is really what charity is right here, feeding the poor, giving those who are in need what they, what they need. It's assisting others who are in need. But he uses this interesting word, the word bestowing. This word bestowing is actually only used three times in the Bible. Two of them are right here in this verse. Another one is in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. But it literally means, the literal definition of it means to feed someone with small mouthfuls or to dole out alms to the poor. That's what it literally means. To bestow is to feed someone with small mouthfuls or to dole out with alms to the poor. What does this mean? So what happened was back in the, in the Bible times, the, the cultural thing was for rich people to help the poor people. Right? And what they would do is they would sit at the gate of their, real, of, their, uh, of their estate and they would set up, I don't know, a little booth or whatever it may be, and the poor people would come by and they would get things from the rich people to meet their needs. So what the rich people did is they would give the poor people small quantities so that more people could receive what they were giving. Therefore, they would receive more praise. You see where the motivation is coming from, right? It's not so much to help the poor, but they're wanting to help as many people, many poor people as possible so that the more people they help, the more praise that they get. This is not coming from the right resource. It's not coming from a motivation of helping other people, but rather it is a selfishly motivated thing that is going on. And Paul says, even if I gave everything that I owned to the poor, And none of us have even thought about doing something like that. But even if I did, it says it doesn't mean anything. Matthew chapter 6, if you want to turn there, that's fine. If not, I'll read it to you. But Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Jesus actually uh, addresses this type of giving, this type of almsgiving. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, he says this, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. And then verses 3 and 4, he says this, But when thou... Uh, doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee how? Openly. Jesus is simply saying, when you help other people, don't become proud about it. Don't blast it out to everybody so that you can be thought well of by other people, but do it simply for the fact of doing it. Do it to help other people out. In fact, if you go over just one chapter here uh, to Matthew chapter 7, it's an interesting statement here that Jesus makes that I think is worth bringing into our study this morning. Matthew chapter 7, 22 and 23, Jesus says this. You've read this before. He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not what? Prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done what? Many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work, what? This is what giving without love looks like. 
It's possible to do it. Obviously, here Jesus is saying that there are going to be people when he comes in the clouds of heaven who have said, haven't we prophesied in thy name? Haven't we cast out devils in thy name? Haven't we done acts of charity in thy name? And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. It didn't come from the right source. It came from a source of pride rather than a source of love. It came from a source of, of, of lifting themselves up instead of exemplifying the character of Christ to other people. You know what? I hate to say it to you this morning, but I'm going to say it anyways. Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, is a good Seventh-day Adventist. Have not we prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? That's a good Christian, is it not? Christians, good Christians will have these things. But they did not have something else. And that's what Paul is hitting at here this morning. You see, it's almost like we try to put fruit on the tree instead of fertilizing the tree so that the tree produces fruit on its own. That's really what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to to be an, an oak tree when the Bible says be an apple tree. And so we tie on apples onto the oak tree so that other people think that we're an apple tree instead of the fact that we're an oak tree. And so God is saying, listen, let me transform you so that you are no longer an oak tree, but you are an apple tree, and let me, let me fertilize you so that you will produce fruit of, uh, from within rather than tying it on from without. This is what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. But he gives us one final contrasting statement that we will look at here this morning, and that is in the last part of verse 3. 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, Last part of verse three, he says this, and though I give my body to be what? Burned and have not charity, it profiteth me how much? Nothing. Arguably, death by fire has to be one of the most painful ways to die. This was not the common form of death or martyrdom back in the time of Paul, but during the dark ages, it became a very prevalent form of persecuting God's people. But Paul tells us here this morning that even if I gave my body to be burned, if it came from the wrong motivation, it doesn't really profit me anything. In fact, if you look at some other translations on this part, it's very interesting the way other translations render this passage. They they put it this way, and though I give my body to be burned or delivered up my body to death that I may boast, if I have not love, It profits me nothing. Again, in the reading of the text, it gives the connotation that the form or the reason for the martyrdom is not to the glorification of God, but to the lifting up of self. You find 1 Corinthians 13 is the antithesis of what we see in the world today. It's directly directly opposite. But this is what Paul is saying God is looking for in his people. He's looking for this stamped in their hearts. No pride, no selfishness, but God and God, God's character alone. So more precious and more valuable than the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy or the gift of faith, acts of charity or martyrdom, more important than that 
is that it comes from the right source, the source of Christ's character. I read something very interesting just the other day. In a little book, The Greatest Thing in the World, I think is what it's called, by a man by the name of Henry Drummond. He was a uh, Scottish evangelist. But he made this interesting statement. I wanted to read it to you this morning. He said this, In the heart of Africa, among the Great Lakes, I have come across black men and women who remembered the only white man they ever saw before, David Livingston. You know who he is, right? He's a great missionary to Africa. He goes on, he says this, and as, of, as, and as you cross his footsteps in that dark continent, men's faces light up as they speak of the kind doctor who passed there years ago. They could not understand him, but they felt the love that beat in his heart. They knew that it was love, although he spoke no words. And I asked myself, if I could not speak, would people know that I love them? Unconditionally, the way Jesus does. If I could not utter another word, would people be able to know by my demeanor, by my actions, that I love God and that his love is within me. You've heard it before, words are cheap. And the world understands that. It's one thing to say you love God. It's one thing to say you love the truth. It's one thing to say you love the Bible and you read the Bible and you study the Bible, but it's another thing to actually have that actually take place in your life to change you so much that you become like what the Bible says we ought to be. And I think Henry Drummond hit on something very important here, that without agape, as Paul says, we are nothing, and it profits us nothing. So I asked the question to myself, if this, if this concept of love is so important, if 1 Corinthians 13 is so integral to the moving forward of the truth and the prosperity of God's church, if it is so important, Why don't we see it today? Why don't we see it today? If it is that important, why don't we see it more in our churches today? I think there's only one answer to that question. It's found in the writings of Jesus. In Matthew, the 24th chapter, verse 12, Jesus says this, and because iniquity shall abound, the agape of many shall what? When something dies, what happens to its heat? When agape dies, what happens in its place? There's coolness. It becomes cold. But when agape exists, there is the warmth of the character of Jesus that is manifested. There is a warmth that the world is looking for. There is a warmth that is attractive. There is a warmth that is transformative. The Bible tells us the reason why that we don't see agape in our lives, in our church, and in our community is because there is a love for something else. Are you all with me this morning? 
And I think if we're going to be honest with ourselves, if we were to reach down into the deep recesses of our hearts and let God do some heart surgery, we would find that there is a little iniquity that is choking any attempt of God's growth of agape in our lives. You can get that mental image that iniquity is putting its hands around the throat of agape in your character. And the longer you let it exist, the tighter that squeeze becomes. And it gets tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter until agape cannot breathe any longer and it dies and it turns cold. And there you find one who will one day say, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name done many wonderful works and in thy name have cast out devils? Jesus said, well, depart from me because you did not have life within you. You did not have that agape character grown within you. So I asked the question this morning, what is motivating your service for God? Is your motivation purely coming from anything that you can get out of it? Or is your motivation to show others who Jesus is? What is your motivation? Is your motivation because you want truth? Or is your motivation to show others who Jesus is? The world is looking for people who have agape beating in their hearts. And I want to be that person that not only loves, but has the truth to share as well. Because we don't want to just love people. We want to love them to the truth. And we do that through having the character of Jesus. How many of you want to say this morning, Father, please give me that experience. I crave it. I can't get it myself but I know that you can give it to me. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the challenge that you give to us. And Lord, this morning, as we've looked at this this beautiful description of how important the supremacy of agape and how powerful it is, how all-encompassing it is, Lord, we realize that we cannot do this on our own. We must have God create it inside of us. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would take away the cold, stony heart and that you would give us a heart of flesh that is warm and that pounds and beats agape, 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 agape. That, Lord, this would become the fabric of who we are made of, that it would become what we are, that we would not be able to respond any other way than how agape would respond. Lord, we can't do it on our own, and we're not even trying to do that. But we come before you this morning asking that you would create it within us. Thank you, Father, for being a God who hears and answers our prayers. And you bless us to this end, we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.